Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 13. We are looking at verses 31 through 35 this morning. They can be found on page 900 in the Pew Bible. John 13, verse 31. We are today concluding the chapter that began with the words, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love is one of the dominant themes of these four chapters, often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse as he teaches and prepares his disciples for his imminent departure. And as John begins this chapter, so he ends it. We again have this eminent departure of Jesus and his urgent insistence upon, his command of love. And so we are back once again to love, as we will be many more times in the chapters to come. For there are few things more important for us to understand There are no things in which the glory of God is more clearly revealed. And so we must work hard to get love correct. The whole world loves the idea of love. But only we know what it means. For it is only in Christ that true love is revealed. And so in the spirit of the New York Marathon going on as we speak, let's begin with a running illustration. I'm sure you will love a running illustration. Uh, Evan Shabbat, uh, Chabet just won the marathon a few minutes ago in a time of 2.08.41, which is which great. It's excellent. It's not a brilliant time, but it's a very good time. He blew the field away. He's amazing. Uh, our very own Jeremy Whitman is running right now. His time won't be quite that good. <laughs> close, maybe. Uh, Jeremy's probably somewhere around mile 11 or 12 right now, uh, close to halfway. Pray for him as he approaches the imminent and inevitable wall. It is a real thing, and it is miserable, and it is wonderful. I really do love running. And so because I both love myself and I love my wife, I have mastered the art of doing things that bless her that always then end up blessing me, right? As a recovering sinner, I am profoundly selfish, and I am very good at looking like I'm doing things for others, when I'm actually doing them for myself. So an example, once a month I make my Monday morning run to Dominique Ansel's Bakery down in the West Village. It is a delightful run, three boroughs, two bridges, some nice neighborhoods, some lovely views. Melissa loves desserts, and the cronut is one of the great inventions of recent history. There's a new flavor every month, So we've gotten in the habit of trying each flavor once a month. I am loving and serving my wife well by getting up early, giving up lots of my time, exhausting myself on a long run, and buying a costly dessert with my hard-earned money for her. You know the joke, right? What am I really doing? Right, I'm loving myself, right? I'm seeking my own good, and I'm coming up with some way to justify it just a little bit by bringing back something for her. I love the run. I love the long time that it takes, for that is more time for me to listen to books. I love wearing myself out because I feel better and sleep better. And I love delicious desserts that I don't have to feel bad about because I just ran for an hour and a half, right? So really, it's it's all about me and my love of my self. Love. 
On this uh, run, I have a long route and a short route. Uh, The long route takes me over the Brooklyn Bridge. The short route takes me over the Williamsburg Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge is beautiful, amazing views. The Williamsburg Bridge, not so much. But the one thing that the Williamsburg Bridge has that the Brooklyn does not is, if you've ever walked it, it's graffiti everywhere. The whole walking path is one giant graffiti mural. And in my quick uh, unscientific survey on Monday, there is no question that the most popular theme of all of that thousands of pieces of graffiti is love. Love was everywhere, all over the Williamsburg There was just the word. There was love attached to various things. The one that I saw the most often in gold said, love is gold. That's pretty good. Gold is a treasure. It's something of great value. Love then is supposedly something of great value. It is a treasure. My favorite tag, which I saw a bunch of times also, said, protect yo heart. I can't probably do it well, but it was protect yo heart. Now, I got excited about that one. You know my favorite book? over the last few years has been John Flavel's Keeping the Heart. My dream is to steal it proudly and openly and update it and apply it and hopefully get Flavel out to more people. I just want to steal someone else's book and then write it again. Maybe somebody beat me to it. Protect your heart, they called the book. Plus, the tag has the numbers 423 beside it, which stands for Proverbs 423. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Amen. I was pretty excited about this protecting your heart thing. But then I got home and I looked it up and apparently it's a movement all about prioritizing self-love and self-appreciation. That was a bummer. Except now I had my perfect opening illustration for this sermon. Love is gold. Okay, that sounds good. Protect your heart. Okay, that sounds good. Wait, but what they actually mean is love yourself. And when we take these two ideas together and we see my tendency to come up with sneaky ways to look like I'm loving others while ultimately I'm only loving myself demonstrates that maybe this whole love thing is not quite as clear and simple as we would like it to be. Love is gold. Love yourself. Yourself is gold is what the message of our world really is saying when it talks about love. You, like me, whether you know it or not, are probably pretty good about being theoretically all about the idea of love while possibly doing very little actual loving. And so we need the words of Christ here. We need the example of Christ here. We need the love of Christ here. But we have been so assaulted and overwhelmed with the false idea of loved, love proclaimed by our fallen world and our sinful hearts that we need a lot of help getting this right. And so let's try something a little bit different this morning. Uh, let's try to understand this uh, too familiar idea. Let's try to understand it with uh, paradoxes. Right? You know what a paradox is, right? A paradox is something that seems absurd. It's an idea that is seemingly self-contradictory. Uh, But in reality, it turns out not to be. And so our passage is quite simple. Jesus talks about glory, and then he talks about his disciples' love. And we're going to consider it in just two points this morning, two paradoxes that will hopefully help us better understand this passage and better understand our Lord and love. And so I want us to see simply the glory of death. Okay, these two things don't seem to generally go together. How can we talk about death and glory, and then I want us to see the law of love. 
glory of death and law of love. Jesus Christ is not at all what the world thinks that he is. And he is also so much better than we often think that he is. Love is not at all what the world thinks that it is. And it is often so much better than we think that it is. And so as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come, he's telling them what they need to know to face what is to come. What do you need to know to face and live this difficult life and find joy in it? You need glory and you need love. Let's read it. The passage is nice and short, but it's so rich and full that I didn't want to shove the Peter verse. Next week, let's come back and compare and contrast Judas and Peter. What, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? That will be next week. So we're just going to stop at verse 35 this week. Let me read it for you. This is the most important part. John 13, verses 31 through 35. But pay attention, for this is the word of the Lord. This is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Bow with me. Let's pause. Let's, let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that you would help us in this time. We thank you for this word that reveals to us what you are like. We thank you for your glory revealed to us in your perfect son. Father, we thank you for the love that is revealed to us in your perfect son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are all of us looking for glory in various things. Show us, show us how clearly and beautifully it is revealed for us here in Christ and in the cross and and in his death. Show us at the same time your great love for us revealed in those very things. Father, we struggle to love as you call and command us uh, to love in this passage, to love like Christ has loved us. So I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would help us where we need to be challenged and convicted and rebuked. I pray that you would do that. But I pray at the same time that we would find great encouragement in Christ and his love of us and his patience with us. I pray that you would use your word, use the example of Jesus to give us a great desire to love one another as he has loved us. Uh, Father, I can't do anything of value in this time. We can't accomplish anything without you. So please help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, we begin with the glory of death. It's not all that hard to figure out what our first two verses are about, as in them we find the word glory in some form five times. Jesus says there in 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Consider first that that now. We've talked a lot about glory. We'll continue to do so. But for now, it's that now. And it's the context into which Jesus speaks these words that makes these words so amazing. 
We've been talking about glory as greatness, glory sometimes used interchangeably or used internally to refer to Jesus' inherent, intrinsic, infinite worth. Love is gold, so it has great value, it has great worth. That's the glory of gold. So Christ's glory can refer to his great value and worth, infinitely above and beyond anything else. Of value. His glory can refer simply to his, his godness, to who he is and his transcendent otherness and goodness and beauty. He is glorious. But we know that glory is also often used more externally to refer not just to the internal inherent greatness of Christ, but the display of that greatness, the, the revelation of it, the showing and shining forth of his infinite value. And worth. And again, we all just, we all understand this idea of glory. It's big and it's great and it's impressive and it's magnificent and beautiful and successful. And we're all of us looking for glory and pursuing that which we think is glorious in all that we do. And we all have an underlying assumption of what such glory should look like. And it is not this. <laughs> Look at the first part of verse 31. We haven't read it yet. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now this. When Judas, what we looked at last week, had gone out. And so in verse 21, we saw that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Why? Well, one of you will betray me, he says to his 12 closest followers. Verse 27, Satan enters into Judas. Verse 30, the phrase that directly precedes all this glory is, and it was night, darkness, deep physical darkness representative of the far deeper spiritual darkness. And so, so catch our context. It's trouble, betrayal, Satan, Judas, darkness, glory. What? These things don't go together. Or even more clearly and confusingly, our context is death and glory. His death and his glory. That's crazy. If you just jumped right into the story at chapter 13 and we're reading all of this, you'd more naturally expect Jesus to say in verse 31, well, now is the Son of Man humiliated. That's what you'd expect. But Jesus says, glorified. And the amazing thing about all this, of course, is That it's both. We said a few weeks ago that if you knew your Bible and were reading the account of Jesus getting low, taking on the role of a servant, and washing the disciples' feet, you couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter 2. It feels like Paul was thinking of that scene as he was composing those beautiful lines. Jesus, who was in the form of God, that means he, he was God, he did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That is, he, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's the next verse, verse 9 of Philippians 2, that starts with a therefore, therefore all of that, because precisely because of all that humiliation and death, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every 
name. That every tongue should confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here's the death, here's the humiliation resulting in the glory. How is that possible? Well, of course, it's only because of what that humiliating death was accomplishing. That's what we think of when we think of glory, right? We think of success, we think of accomplishment, we think of greatness. Well, if that's the case, then there's nothing more glorious than this. Because there was nothing more successful and nothing that accomplished more than the humiliating death of Christ. And so repeatedly in John, we've been seeing John directly connect crucifixion and glorification. Crucifixion and glorification. We've seen the beautiful play on words of Jesus being lifted up. That's, that's glory language. And that's cross language. But again, how? How is Jesus glorified in death? It's because of what that death does. Look back at 1247. Just a couple of the the highlights here that we've been looking at. Back in 1247, Jesus has just said that he has come to save the world. He has just said in 1232 that when he is lifted up from the earth, there it is, when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people To himself, showing by what kind of death he was going to die. Back in 1125, in the context of Lazarus' death, he has just said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He has just said back in 1010, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Well, how? 1011, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And on and on and on. We could go throughout this gospel. One more. He is the good shepherd. Behold, 129, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, that's why glory. Sin is why. That sin that we talked about in the beginning that makes the whole of life, the whole of reality all about us. All about self. For that is what sin ultimately is. Remember one of those best, wonderful Latin phrases. Sin is incurvitas, in say. You can hear that curving word in there. Sin turns us in. It, it curves us in on our self. To where I can go to great lengths to look like I'm loving others when actually I'm only loving myself. But being turned in on and ultimately focused upon and loving self, I am necessarily also then turned away from and not focusing upon and loving uh, the God who is life, the God who is my creator and my Lord, the one who is the whole of life, the one who is the whole, uh, that the whole of reality is about. And we're trying to see our sin for what it really is because we still just don't think it's that big of a deal. We're trying to understand why the wages of sin is death. Romans 6:23. It's because our sin is so much more than making some mistakes, so much more than breaking some rules. We've seen it as our our cosmic treason, our attempt to ungod God, to dethrone God, to kill God so that we can be God. And God cannot and does not take that lightly. And as that sin rebels against and rejects the God of life, the result is and can only be 
death. The wages of sin is death, but God. Right? But Romans 6.23 keeps going. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why glory. We have created a problem. We have rejected God. We owe death for that uh, sin. The very God whom we reject provides the solution. He provides the death that we owed. And He does it by coming Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our sacrifice, our substitute, who takes our place and takes our sin and takes our death. That's glory. The highest got the lowest. The exalted one humiliated Himself. For this was the only way to save His people from their sin. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the glory that you need. This is the one and only glory that satisfies, for it is the only glory that saves. And in saving from death, it is saving you to life. It is, it is saving you uh, to the God of life and glory. The one that you were made to find your life and your joy in from the beginning. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. The one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. This is what Jesus is doing. Relationship is life. Jesus restores us to relationship with the God who is fullness of life. And he can only do it first by dying for us in our place. That's glory. Eternal glory coming only through the death of the all-glorious one in our place. And remember this, this is wonderful, provocative John Owen quote that I like. I've given you a break uh, from it for a while. But Owen writes, this is the universal remedy and cure. This is the only comfort and cure for all our diseases. And we would all of us pay whatever we could to have a universal remedy and cure. A balm and comfort for all that ails us. And Owen claims that this universal cure is a sight of the glory of this Christ. John had opened up this book saying in 114, and we have seen his glory. Have you seen it? Have you had a glimpse of his glory? It is revealed for you most clearly in the cross. The cross which reveals most clearly God's love for us, his people. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the glory of God is revealed and the love of God is revealed in the death of God's Son for us. Therefore, glory transitions quite naturally and logically to love. The glory of God revealed in the love of God for His people also then naturally transitions to the glory of God revealed in the love of God's people for God's people. And so before we can talk about all the love, before we can talk about how short I fall of this and all of us fall of this standard, we've got to go back to the source and the core. We've got to start with the glory of God revealed in the death of God's Son, which reveals for us His perfect love. We cannot and will not love one another as we are called to do if we don't first focus there. See His glory revealed in His death. Point number two. 
We move directly from the glory of death to the law of love. Again, two terms that generally don't go together in our minds. Look back to the text. Verse 34. We're going to do verse 33 and some of the middle stuff more next week with Peter. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And I, I love that this verse begins with law. I love that Christ commands law. For that directly contradicts our culture's very conception of what love is. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the, the Sherlock Holmes books, writes in one of them, We can't command our loves. Christ can. And he does here. A new commandment I give to you. Love. Look almost directly across the page if you're in the Pew Bible. The next use of this word commandment comes in chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ seems to have no problem tying law and love closely together. You cannot have one without the other. They are two sides of the same coin. And the timing of this is so perfect because this is exactly what we're studying in the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means second law or the second giving or exposition of the law. And we just began on Thursday to introduce the Ten Commandments or uh, called the, the Ten Words, actually, in Scripture. They're never called the Ten Commandments in the Bible, though they very much are commandments. They're not suggestions. They are not optional. Uh, they're not good ideas. They are law. And law is good. And so we made the case on Thursday that the Ten Commandments are God's moral law for us. They reveal to us what God is like. And they reveal to us what God's will is for us. What he wants for us. All in ten concise, comprehensive words or laws. It's brilliant. I mentioned this on Thursday. Uh, you got an election coming up on Tuesday. We're all thinking of politics and all of these things. Do you know how many laws our country has? You don't. I don't either. And no one does. There's no official count. There's so many of them. There's so many thousands upon thousands of laws that no one has been able to count how many there are. God gives us ten. And they're good. Can you imagine how good this world would be? If everyone were actually keeping God's ten laws, if everyone was loving and putting God first and not worshiping self and created things, uh, honoring God's name, resting, honoring authority, not murdering and angry, not committing adultery and lusting, telling the truth, not stealing, not coveting and wanting everybody else's stuff. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't that sound loving? And God pulls all that off in only ten laws. Come Thursday nights for the next ten weeks as we get into those ten good words. But it gets even better. Because as we saw in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked which uh, is the great commandment in the law, he answers in Matthew 22, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So God's whole law is summarized for us in ten laws, is summarized for us in two laws, is summarized for us in one law. Love. Law is all about love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is legislating and commanding love. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Oh, they're good, church. And they're for our good, as they are all about love. Love from God, which results in love for God, which results in love for one another. See law and love together, and how good and gracious this is. But again, look at the text. How can Jesus say that this is a new commandment? We just said that the whole law was and always has been about love. It was written over a thousand years before Jesus, the book of Leviticus, over a thousand years before Jesus uttered these words. We read in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So how then can this be new? There's probably a number of ways that we could really look at this, but, but look at the verse again. I think it has to be that last part. Love one another. That's exactly the same as Leviticus. Love one another just as I have loved you. And that's different. That's wonderfully, beautifully, disturbingly different. Because look at how Jesus loved us. Remember, we're in the context. Jesus is still explaining and applying his washing of the disciples' feet which wasn't at all about physically cleansing their feet, but was a sign of his spiritually cleansing their souls, their dirty, sinful souls. And we've just seen what was required for that. Here's how bad it was. It required the death of the perfect Son of God. Therefore, what Christ is commending, what he is commanding here, as I have loved you, is... Self-sacrificing, self-giving, self-forgetting, other-focusing, other-pursuing, other-serving love. For that is how Christ has loved us. For this is what love is and does first and foremost. It seeks the good of the loved. And it does so at great cost and sacrifice to the self. Is that not what Christ has done for us? You are going to spend an eternity in hell unless I come and spend an eternity in hell in your place for you and take all of that sin for you and suffer and die what you cannot even begin to imagine so that you can live. That's pursuing our good. And Jesus says, love like that. Love as I have loved you. Die to seek and serve the good of one another. And so love is defined by Christ. Here's why our world can't quite get love right. Because it is only defined by Christ. It is defined by Christ on the cross. And he says here to all his disciples, Hey, you, here's the law, love like that. So love is a law. We're seeing there that love is first in action. We're trying to really emphasize that point. Love, love does. But let's be clear. Love is action. But love is also affection. Look back at how Jesus begins in verse 33. Again, we'll, we'll come back to these verses next week. But look at how he starts in verse 33. How he speaks to his grown disciples. 
little children. This is the only time we find uh, that word in all the Gospels. But John picks up on it and uses it a number of times in his first letter. There's another regular word for children. Uh, This is a different word. This is a more intimate, uh, a term of affection, a term of endearment. Little children, dear children, children whom I love and like. Aren't we so glad that Christ's love for us also includes Christ's affection for us? Not because we're so lovable. We are not in any way lovable. But because He is so perfectly loving. And so this loving, praise God, includes liking. And you know where I'm going with this. I know people disagree with this. I don't understand the disagreement. But there's all kinds of things I don't understand, so that's not all that surprising. But if we are to love as Christ has loved us, I I cannot see in any way that we would want to argue that Christ does not have affection for us, his little children. I cannot conceive in any sense where Christ loved any of us but didn't like us, that he performed the action of love for us apart from the affection of love for us. Oh, Melissa, yeah, of course, you know, she's pretty great. I love her and like her. But that Matthew, ugh. You know, I have to love him, I guess, since the Father has given him to me. But I just don't like him. He's so so grumpy. No, I'm so thankful that that is an impossibility with the active, affectionate love of Christ. Little children. He's going to go on to talk to him about, uh, you're you're my friends. Those whom I love, those whom I like, those whom I have great affection for, demonstrated in my great action for. Hey, Christians, love one another like that. Love one another and get over it. Like one another. Why would we want it to be otherwise? Right? Are we all going to be best friends? Of course not. Are some of us really difficult and unlikable? Of course we are. If we were to get down to it and really open up and had our like an unlikable competition and really opened up our hearts, there's a pretty good chance that I would be the most unlikable person in this room. I, and I'm not even jo- I'm not being facetious. I think I could win that competition. Thank God for John 13:34. You're stuck with me. The Lord commands you to love me, and He commands me to love you in all your difficulty, and you to love me in all of mine. And for us to like each other. Why would we want anything else? And so surely much of what John wants us to see here in this great focus in these four chapters on the revelation of Christ's love is that it is so much bigger. It's so much more glorious than we ever imagined. Surely we want this then to be a place that is marked by such wonderful, inexplicable, supernatural love. Love each other. Like each other. Well, yeah, but what about... Or sure, you know, in theory, but this one person is this, or they, they did that. Or that. No, no, I don't care. And I don't care if this is too pie-in-the-sky idealistic. I don't care if you think I'm being a Pollyanna. I don't care if you think this is entirely unrealistic. I care about the gospel. I know myself a little bit. I know my wretchedness. And the sinful selfishness that remains. I know that you little know the depths of it. But I also know that God perfectly knows. 
all of it. We saw it last week. We all of us stand naked and exposed before his eyes. He knows me and my sin better than I do. He sees it all. And he forgives it all. He knows and he loves. Church, if that is true, and if you're anything as bad as I am, then there's, there's nothing too high. There's nothing too difficult. There's nothing too idealistic that he can call us to if his self-sacrificing, substitutionary, dying love is true. Love one another just as I have loved you. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 8. We cannot hear this passage enough. This is not a wedding passage. Susan, don't use this in the wedding. This is not a romance passage. This is how we, all of us, in all of our difficulty... This is how we are commanded to relate to and love one another. This is for us. Aren't you thinking of the most difficult person in this room that you just can't quite get along with? Don't say it out loud. (laughs) I want you to think of that person, and I want you to listen to these verses. And I want you to think of your interactions and your thinking and your loving. Because, again, this this is what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I don't understand why people love that passage. That passage destroys me. It just destroys me. It rips me apart. If God's word and law are a mirror held up to us, then God save me from myself because I do not like what I see when I look into that mirror. Have you ever really considered those verses? Have you considered them specifically and practically? Spouses, have you considered those verses in your relationship with your spouse when they're being difficult? Parents, have you considered those verses in your relationships when your children won't just stop bothering you? Have you considered those verses interpersonally with one another in conflict? Surely Jesus isn't telling us to love one another except when people are difficult, right? Surely that's not what he's saying. When everything's fine, do this, but when things are hard or people are difficult, yeah, okay, don't worry about it. No, doesn't this apply especially when people are difficult and there is conflict and disagreement? How have your interactions been with others? Have you been patient? What about kind? Have you envied or boasted? If you're on social media, you have. Couldn't resist. Have you been arrogant? Yes, I just did it. See? You're just arrogant about social media. Have you been rude? Have you insisted on your own way? I hate these. Have you been irritable? Irritable's in there. Resentful, bearing, believing, hoping, enduring, all things. Church, that's love. That's the same word from the same Christ who has just told us, here's your commandment, here's your law, love one another. Here's what it looks like. Memorize that. And then use it. Rehearse it. When I'm being grumpy, I'm using this passage and I'm using the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm fighting myself. I do not get to act like this if the gospel is true. I do not get to feel like this if this is what Christ is doing in my life. Use these, rehearse them, apply them. How short we fall of such love.
How perfect and patient must be our God to love us as we so struggle to love him and love each other. But it's, come on, it's, it's such a beautiful picture. Just like the law, can you imagine if people actually lived like that? What if people actually lived like this? Hey, love is so much better than we thought. And isn't it so neat that this love, such love, is law? It's, this is God's goodwill for you. And he's out for your good. Wouldn't life be amazing if we loved like this? Wouldn't the world stand up and notice if we loved like this? Well, that seems to be precisely what Christ says. Look at verse 35. Back to John 13, verse 35. Love one another. Verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. I had an ethics professor in seminary, a Daniel Heimbach, not my advisor. This guy, he did not like me very much. Um, and I don't blame him. I was still a mess back then. We butted heads about a few things. I've thought before about going back to him. Did I, do I need to talk with this guy again? I don't know. The sanctifying power of God through Melissa had only just begun. Um, but I was still helped by this professor in many ways. And one of the main ways being was that he was the person who introduced me to Francis Schaeffer or the books of Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer died the month after I was born. But Heimbach, my professor, knew Schaeffer and studied with Schaeffer over Switzerland and knew him pretty well. His parents knew him uh, pretty well. And he taught a whole course entirely on Schaeffer. So I've read everything that Schaeffer has ever written with someone who knew and studied with him. It was, it was pretty neat. But if you want a good Francis Schaeffer introduction, go grab his tiny little book. It's like 50 pages. It's called The Mark of the Christian. And it's entirely about this verse, as he argues persuasively that it is our love for one another that is to be the distinguishing mark of any and all Christians. This is what is supposed to identify us. This is what is supposed to set us apart. Our third point last week was that Christians rest in the love of Christ. We are, all of us, the disciples whom Jesus loved. And the point of all this is that his love is so powerful and effective that it, that it marks us. And it makes us like him. Like love. This is how you can tell. This is how you can know. And, and listen, I know we're not talking about love as the world defines it, but as Christ defines it. But we cannot give up the mark and what is rightfully ours and rightfully understood only by us, only by the grace of God, just because the world co-ops it and gets it so wrong. No, that means we just need to strive extra hard to get it right. And that starts with understanding how perfectly Christ has loved us and then turning and actively and intentionally seeking to love one another as Christ has loved us. It is by this, Jesus says, that the world will know that we are his disciples. Which could imply, I think he's saying, that if uh, we don't have this, the world has the right to judge that we are not his disciples. Uh, how can they tell? Jesus says, here's, here's the mark. A disciple is a follower. A disciple believes what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. Well, here Jesus says and commands love, and then he perfectly does it on the cross. And so to follow the Lord of love will look like love. And so Schaefer goes on to say that such love is our final apologetic. It is our ultimate argument. It is our evidence 
are proof of the reality of the God who has loved and who has saved such sinners like us and brought us together in such a love that could only be explained by grace. Does that not then raise the stakes as high as possible when it comes to our interpersonal relationships and our love for one another? The world cannot see God, but it can see us. And we are here in part to reveal God to the world, to reveal what God is like to the world. And yes, that happens first and foremost as we speak the gospel of Christ, as we boldly proclaim the good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. But it also happens as we do something that the world uh, does not and cannot do. It cannot love like this, for this is a supernatural love that happens only by grace. We all know how hard evangelism is. We all know that we have a witness problem. Maybe if we have a witness problem, it's first in part somewhat of a, of a love problem. Brothers and sisters, love one another. And start by looking at how God himself has loved you. You, me, in all our sin and difficulty. See how he has loved us in Christ. And see how much bigger and better that love is. Is. And so again, it's one of the main things that I want to accomplish here. Is I, just, I just want us to see how different this love is from what we often think it is and from what we often do. The love that results from the gospel of grace is, is profound. I want you to see how especially self-forgetting and other-focusing this love is. Remember, Jesus gets low and he serves. How prone are we today to do the exact opposite Right, our, our first look tends to be self. How can I present myself in this way? How can I capture this and post it so people can say how great I am? Or we serve something and then we get upset when we don't get praised um, for that thing. No, we're, we're, just, we're so self-focused, so focused inward. We have our needs. When those needs aren't being met, we are sad. And our solution is, is generally no better than figuring out how to get those needs met. Look how different this is. Look how other and outward focused this Jesus is. This is so countercultural and so often counter church cultural. Instead of me obsessing over me, my identity, my needs, my fulfillment, my rights, this gets me to change the question, right? to, to change the focus to first, first, why am I so concerned about myself and about my needs and about my rights? Well, it can only be because I'm not finding the fullness of rest and peace and joy and satisfaction and identity in Christ that I should be. That's the first why. And then my question changes from what about me to, well, okay, how can I in this situation love God and honor him? How can I seek the good of this other person in this situation? It's, it's an entirely different way of thinking that I still struggle with. Love each other. Focus on each other first. Philippians 2.3, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's love. Looking not to your interests first, but to others. One commentator says, love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they need. I like that. Love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they need. Truly need. Spiritually need. Christ. This is not easy. We are not good at this, but it is good, and our only hope is grace. And so see 
and rest and rejoice first in the amazing grace of the God who saves sinners who still so struggle to love as we have been perfectly loved by him. And then see who you can begin to love intentionally, sacrificially, practically. Who can you reach out to? Who can you connect with? Who can you seek to do spiritual good? Part of the saddest thing is that it often is so simple and takes so little, and yet we're still so focused on self that we struggle even to send the text or to make that short call or to care enough to ask how someone is doing and then actually listen. God help us and God forgive us. Among the many great lines in Augustine's confessions, he wrote them as kind of, it's kind of his autobiography, but written as prayers to the Lord. But one of my favorite lines is that he says, as he's praying to the Lord, he says, I have become a puzzle to myself. I love that. I'm experiencing that right now. It's easy to joke about cronuts and serving my wife as a pretense to serving myself. But it is indicative of a reality that resides deep and disturbingly in my heart. And so I just assume that it might just also uh, reside in your heart as well. And ultimately, it's pride. It is this inordinate love of self and self-focus and self-concern and self-obsession. And how, how enslaving is that self, that, that monster self, as John Newton used to always say. And so then how liberating is the setting aside and the forgetting of that self. Yes, love is gold. Yes, protect your heart. But don't do it the way that the world says. It doesn't work. Just look around. Look at our world. Look at how miserable it and everyone in it is, if you want proof. Right? It's, it's our heart that is the problem. So protect that heart, not by looking first to it, but by looking first to Christ, the lover and savior of sinful, selfish hearts who then sets us free to look to him and live and to look to others in love and in so doing, find the life and the freedom and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that we think we find in the pursuing of ourself. And it seems crazy. It seems paradoxical, but it's so beautiful. Jesus is what we are all looking for, whether we know it or not. He is what we all need, whether we know it or not. And so we need to see the glory of his death, of his death for us, and then the law of love, his good law for us, because he loves us. And what will be the result? Let me close with John 15. Let me just read this for you. I can't wait to get to these verses. Look at how this all kind of comes together. John 15. Just a chapter over, verses 9 through 13. John 15, I'll read verses 9 through 13. Notice the result. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So perfect love of the Father for the Son. He's loved us like that. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's the law and love connection again. Oh, here it is. Here's what he's after. These things I have spoken to you, his word and his law, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Find that love of which there is none greater 
in this world. Find it in Jesus. And you find that in Jesus, and you will find joy. And that's what we all want. He says he's working for our full joy, and he clarifies. It's, it's actually it's my joy, the perfect joy of God given to us by grace through faith in Christ. Joy is found in him. Not anywhere else. Not in yourself. Not in changed, improved circumstances. But in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Love him, church. And let us seek to love one another as he has loved us. If you would bow with me, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this word that is a a hard and a challenging and a convicting word for me. Father, we need these regular reminders of just how wonderful and supernatural and unexpected and perfect the love of Christ is for us. Father, forgive us that we would ever dare to doubt your love for us. Forgive us for doing you the great disservice of doubting your love when we see it revealed so clearly in Christ on that cross. Father, I pray that our focus would be first fixed upon him. I pray that you would fill our hearts with great affection and knowledge and joy uh, resulting from the reality that we have life in you because of Christ's death in our place. Father, I pray that that would be what would mark and define us. And as we are filled with that love, as you pour that love um, into our hearts by your spirit, we ask that you would continue to more and more make us a people who love one another. I'm just a little bit like you have so perfectly loved us. Father, I thank you for the great evidences of that love that you're already building and growing and producing um, in this place. Um, Father, what evidence of your working and, and of your grace and of your power. Father, we want to more and more love like Jesus uh, so that we can more and more encourage one another and do one another good and point one another to Christ and be a better witness and testimony to the world that so desperately needs the love of Jesus Christ. So, Father, please help us. We ask simply now that you would do your will by your spirit through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.